0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a paper recorded at Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023 Civil Wars and Their Legacy. This conference took place in Queen's University Belfast on the 10th of March, 2017. The conference was organised as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023 in conjunction with Queen's University School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the Institute of Irish Studies, and the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland 2020-2023 is a project run by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan that examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the partition of Ireland. All four papers of the conference were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now publicly available on History Hub. This episode features a paper by Dr. Bill Cassan from the London School of Economics. The paper, State Formation, Contested Legitimacy, and Civil War in Independent Ireland, 1922-23, was introduced by Dr. Marie Coleman, who began by speaking about the ideas behind the commemorating partition and civil wars in Ireland project.
1: This uh, conference that we're organising today is uh, part of a, of, a, of a research project which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and very much linked to the events in this ongoing Irish decade of centenaries. It follows on from a project that Dominic, Bryan and myself ran last year on uh, how the centenary of 1916, both the Rising and the Somme, would be approached in Northern Ireland in particular, uh, in the the current um, political climate. And one of the things that jumped out at me most in the course of that project was a comment made by Tom Hartley, the former Sinn Féin mayor of Belfast, who said, 1916 is the easy bit. The hard bit is going to come when we get to looking at 1920, 1922, 23. Uh, and that comment stayed in my mind, and it, it was. I think it was uh, reawakened by a comment I heard Joe Lee make a seminar in Trinity when he was looking at the decade of centenaries and commemoration from a historical perspective. And he posed the very simple question, how do you commemorate a civil war? Uh, And uh, those two comments, I think, really made me sit down and think, uh, how are we going to approach the next part of the decade of centenaries on both sides of the border, which at the time I, i put in the application to the AHRC. We obviously had the border, but uh, I suppose that the issue of the border and what state will be in in 2021 20, uh, has gained a lot of um, more interest for us now since Brexit. So you've all these sort of competing historical and um, interests, but also the contemporary resonance of them. The project overall uh, redeems with a number of themes, commemoration being one The context in which commemoration takes place and also the comparative aspect. Uh, I was very interested in trying to break out of that bad habit of Irish historians of thinking that what happened in Ireland was the most important thing and nothing else mattered. And that's why one of the comparisons we have to look at here today is that of Finland. A country of, with a population very similar to the to Ireland at the time, uh, a, a country that gained its independence in broadly similar time in the context of the post First World War period, and that that then was followed by a civil war. So I thought that the, trying to find uh, see are the Irish, this sense of Irish exceptionalism is that the case, or, or is something similar going on in other states that might be comparable. Now, today's fo- the, the project overall, I suppose, is three aspects, to of it. We want to look at uh, approaching the centenary of partition. We want to look at civil wars in both the southern and the northern context. Uh, some people will be thinking today, well, a lot of what we're looking at today is the, this what we would call the Irish Civil War, which happened very much in the, the 26 counties. That's not uh, ignoring the fact that there was effectively another civil war, you could say, in uh, Ulster between 1920 and 1922, we're not really looking at partition and the, the northern conflict as much today, but that will form part of other events we're organising later in the year. So you'll, um, uh, you'll probably hear about follow up conferences. So just to, just to explain why our, today we've chosen to stick with, to be as coherent as possible and stick with civil wars from the, the, the southern Irish end of it and the comparative from Finland. And then at the end of it, uh, when we've had the, I suppose, the subject specific. And the country-specific studies of civil wars, uh, David Armitage from Harvard, who was delayed on his flight from Boston, but he should be here by four o'clock to give his keynote, which I think will, will draw out a lot of ideas about civil wars and uh, what they are, what can you call a civil war, what's a characteristic of a civil war which is something, ideas that he first expounded here back in 2010 in his Wiles lectures, which have now been published in his his book on civil wars. And after our hard afternoons conferencing, we we can all repair for a nice glass of wine and the launch of his book uh, to to round up proceedings. So I'll hand over now to our our speakers. Um, Our first guest uh, today is uh, Dr. Bill Kassan from uh, the LSE, And Bill has has written on on so many aspects which are relevant to what we're interested in in today. His most recent publication, just came out in February um, 2016, looks very much at civil wars and a a lot of comparative aspects of of civil wars. Um, But that uh, work has also grown out of a, a large body of work crossing the barriers, I suppose, between political science and history, looking at constitutionalism the nature of constitutions and the nature of uh, of democratic uh, governments. One of the post- 2016. I know one of the things which the Irish government will be looking at when it gets to commemorating later events in the decade of centenaries is making a big deal out of the fact that the independent Irish state, as established in 1921, has stayed democratic, well, so far anyway, um, and hopefully it'll still be in 2021, has stayed democratic for the entire period, in contrast to so many successor states of the First World War. Well, if they want to try and explain that, if they want to try and explain to a wider audience why it is democracy survived in Ireland in the 20s and 30s, I I would say they should look no further than Bill's excellent uh, exploration of that topic in his his book on uh, explaining Irish democracy. For those of you who aren't as familiar maybe with the civil war, the Irish civil war itself, and would like a, a good introduction to it, and why it has really dominated Irish politics, uh, for so long after 1922, I would send you to yet another one of his books, um, uh, the Politics of the Irish Civil War, which is published about, about almost 10 years ago now. But one of the, the there's a chapter in that. It's just a, I think it's chapter four, and I always use it for my students. Just uh, it's one of the best and con- most concise examinations and summaries of what the Irish Civil War was about. So if it's a topic you're not familiar with, that's a very good place to start. And then the rest of that book will explain to you why uh, why the politics surrounding that conflict uh, ha- have been so resonant in independent Ireland. So I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll, I'll let Phil um, take up that point. Thanks,
2: Marie, for that introduction. Um, I think when it comes to the Civil War, one of the simplest things to kind of digest is how little time it actually took before the civil war actually started. That's to say that the Irish Free State under the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty was established on 6th of December 1921 and then the civil war began on June 28, 1922. So really the gap in time was really only about seven months. So it happened very, very quickly and the way I see this particular conflict, I don't think it was a a conflict between social groups, I don't think it was a revolution, I see it as a kind of succession conflict where the nationalist movement fell apart over the question of who was going to inherit British power in Ireland and it was a succession conflict in two ways. Firstly, it was a struggle for control of the new state. And secondly, it was a struggle to define the values of the new state, and in particular to decide what the relationship between Britain, the Free State, and Northern Ireland would be. I think it's axiomatic that this was a civil war fought among people who largely shared fundamental values, a shared sense of identity, and had the same idea that the ideal Irish state would be an independent 32 county <laughs> republic but they differed fundamentally as to how that could be achieved, and they differed specifically over the question of whether the Anglo-Irish Treaty was an appropriate means of achieving Irish independence. So you have the map here, and Ireland, or the Irish Free State, is covered in green, and there is that very good title of a book on the Civil War by Michael Hopkinson, green against green, that gives this sense of a country really fighting a civil war, dividing itself. And of course, it might be the case that if people share a lot in common, that a conflict will be less polarising. But it might also be the case that in Ireland at the time, people may have shared a lot in common, but it may have been precisely because of the value they attached to the things that held them in common, that they found it very difficult to compromise. So basically, I think the civil war in Ireland is a classic example of what happens to an emerging country when it has emerged. And in this particular case, what happens very quickly is a civil war begins. Now, in terms of my particular lecture, I've done a lot of studies of of civil war in a very broad context, but I'm going to start off taking a very narrow approach to the civil war because it's the one that's most familiar in Ireland. If it's a struggle fought over who is going to control the new state, this brings into question immediately the question of leaders. You have the anti-treaty leader Eamon de Valera, a survivor of the 1916 Rising, who sticks by the idea of a pure, unsolied, free, independent republic consistent with the ideals of 1916 and won't accept either dominion status under the treaty or partition. Then you've got Michael Collins, the IRA leader who accepts the treaty and who provides a brilliant justification for accepting the treaty by saying it may not give us the ultimate freedom that all nations aspire to, but it can be a stepping stone to that treaty. Now, the reason I start with this type of emphasis on leaders is not simply because these two men become rivals. If you go to the database, the online catalogue of the National Library in Dublin, and you type in Eamon de Valera, and you count the number of titles with Eamon de Valera in the title, and then you count in the number of titles with Michael Collins, you get over 400 different entries. So the public in the Republic of Ireland have tended to see their civil war through the prism of leaders, through the prism of rivalry between the leaders, and in terms of genres, the way in which people in the past studied the civil war was biography. And of course, this is very, very important because it suggests, firstly, that there was something very personal about this Conflict And indeed there was, because all of these people were close comrades. But if you, on the other hand, think of it in terms of these two men, just consider how much they had in common. Neither of them came from wealthy backgrounds. Both of them were Irish Catholics. They largely had the same cultural values in being Irish nationalists and so forth. So in a way, the conflict is not only personal, it's something very close, right? It's a conflict where the violence is very close. And as the civil war goes on, you have this specter of people who are formerly comrades in an independent struggle turning against each other. And as the free state becomes desperate about bringing this conflict to a close, it resorts to a policy of executions. And in January 1923, the decision is taken to devolve responsibility for executing people to officers at the county level. And this is where this idea of closeness of violence comes in. Because once you do that, of course, it's highly likely that the people who are going to be selected to be executed are people that the officers themselves will know something about. So this particular approach to the conflict is one approach. It suggests it's very narrow, it's very personal, and it's very intimate. So we have something like 400 titles that have these two men. In the title of the publication. In contrast, as a specialised historical subject, the Civil War has been relatively neglected in the literature. If you compare the figure of 400 to the number of academic studies of the Civil War, even if they're specialised subjects like Gemma's study, you probably have about 10, right? You probably have about 10 publications. So basically, the Irish have approached this particular conflict through the prism of biography. And of course, the stress on leaders is very, very important when we consider counterfactuals. For example, what would have happened in terms of the outcome if it was Collins who opposed the treaty with his strength in the Republican movement militarily, and it was de Valera, the statesman, who backed the settlement, would that have meant that the outcome of the Civil War could have been very different? So there's all sorts of things I think we can think about in terms of this biographical approach. On the other hand, I'm not a conventional Irish historian. I'm certainly not a biographer, and I don't wish to add to this particular biographical literature. Largely in terms of my professional activities, I see this conflict, and in terms of how I teach this thing, just as one instance of something which is very common throughout human history, and particularly common in the second part of the 20th century, namely civil war. So in contrast to a very narrow approach, we can also think of how to approach this conflict in the broadest sense possible. And I'll start with the observation by T. Desmond Williams that there was nothing peculiarly Irish about fighting a civil war after the departure of an imperial power. So the question would be, in terms of this transition from empire, the British Empire, to independence, in terms of this transition globally, what would Ireland's conflict fit in, in terms of the type of conflicts that happen? And don't forget that in the 20th century, one of the fundamental geopolitical changes that has taken place, which has been productive of so much conflict is this general collapse of empire and the creation of replacement nation states so for example we could think of maybe 130 states between the first world war and now that have come into being in the last hundred years so there's a link i think between this experience of decolonization and the occurrence of civil war in 2003 Two quantitative American political scientists calculated that between 1945 and 1999, the world had seen as many as 127 internal wars, as opposed to less than 30 wars between states. So civil war has become the dominant form of warfare in the 20th century, and basically this connection between decolonization and state formation is very important. Within that pattern, there is something very important too, which is that over 30 conflicts in this process of change happen within 10 years of independence. So the Irish conflict, one would say, is not necessarily unique. And I have here just a reproduction of a table I've taken from a book, which shows in the left-hand vertical column the number of nation-state creations in five-year periods from 1800 up to 2000. And you can see here there are spikes in the number of nation-state creations at specific points in history. And that if we go to Ireland, basically between 1916 and 1920, there is another huge spike because of the collapse of the European land empires. So this is taken from an author called Andreas Wimmer that makes a strong argument, just as I've said, that actually the thing that triggers the occurrence of civil war in the 20th century has mostly been state formation in the aftermath of imperial collapse. Ireland is a good example of that. If this is the case, what explains this happening? What are the factors between imperial collapse and nation-state creation that explain the experience of civil war? And are they also applicable to Ireland? And the first thing is, in an Irish context, is you have to stress the timing. It might be that if Ireland became independent after the Second World War, that the question of whether you could have an independent republic within the British Empire may not have been so insoluble. It might have produced a consensual response. The second thing, certainly, is that as a consequence of the departure of the British forces in Ireland and the late way in which both the police force and an army came into being in 1922, a power vacuum existed in Irish society, and this led to the mobilization of IRA units at the local level, that posed a threat to any independent government. The second thing that is important is, or the third thing that is important, is that the new states often struggle to establish new principles of legitimacy that are accepted basis for the new state. So you have three things in Ireland. You have the idea of the state, you have the territory of the state, and then you have the institutional expression of the state. The idea of the state was, of course, polarising, because the term free state, the Irish free state, was seen as tinged with dominionism and imperialism, and it was seen as something much less than the hallowed Irish Republic, which had been proclaimed in 1916. In terms of the territory of the state the free state did not want to be a 26 county state but it was a 26 county state in practical terms and the anti-treaty republicans refused to accept this territorial basis and committed to themselves to a 32 county state and lastly in terms of the institutional basis of the state the parliament itself particularly the parliament which convened on the 9th of september 1922 This was also polarising, because there was a debate about whether or not this Parliament was a continuation of the revolutionary dolls that had been proclaimed from 1919 onwards, which represented the idea of the Republic. Was this Parliament, which met in September, a continuation of those doles, or was it in fact a Parliament of Southern Ireland? which had been created under the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, which partitioned Ireland. So new principles of legitimacy were being (coughs) contested. And the last thing is something that maybe doesn't seem so obvious, which is basically both the anti-treatyites and pro-treatyites in Ireland had to consider the question of whether or not their political projects, their ideas, their values were widely based in the general population. Were they elites or were they representative elites? So it's quite familiar for people to say among historians that in fact what really problematized the free state for the Republicans who rejected the treaty was that they discovered very quickly that in fact this population of the 26 counties doesn't care that much about the republic. It only cares for peace. So there was a gap between the preferences of the anti-treaty leaders and the IRA and the 26-county population. But likewise, in terms of the provisional government, who basically were setting up the state, they were profoundly sceptical of the civic values of the population they were beginning to rule. They believed they lacked civic virtue. So you had this tension all the time at this moment of state creation, between the preferences and values of the political elite and their relationship to the general public. Now, of course, when we talk about these colonial-imperial parallels, they have been challenged by historians, and one way in which they have been challenged is historians have said that, yes, there may be parallels, but what happens in Ireland is not on a scale, of what happens in other parts of the post-colonial world, particularly in Africa and in Asia. And it is true, I think, that when we look at the Civil War, as scholars, we have to accept the fact that in terms of casualties, if Una Halpin's study of the dead of the Irish Revolution is accurate, the figures for deaths in the Civil War are not going to be more than 1,500 people. You compare that to, for example, a country like Mozambique, which becomes independent in 1975, starts a civil war in 1976, and over the next 15 years, 900,000-plus people are killed. You cannot compare conflicts like this. They may be both civil wars, but they're not comparable experiences. Also, in terms of these colonial parallels, one of the problems of new states in Asia and Africa is how to project power when you're a new state, how to project power over your society. And we have to accept here again that Mozambique is three times the size of England with a population of only about 15 million in 1975. The projection of power is extremely difficult. But in this context, in the context of the Irish Free State, you have no problem of comparable proportions. If you were to take Athlone as being the centre of the independent state, and look at the distance either to Donegal, to the west coast with Galway, to Dublin, or to Cork. Cork is the furthest away, but just only over 100 miles. So it's a small state in which power was projected quickly and relatively successfully. And don't forget in this civil war that by August, mid-August 1922, Collins had established military control over every significant urban centre in the country. So there's a clear-cut outcome. And lastly, that brings in the question of partition, which is the anti-treatyites may have been against partition, but the pro-treatyites, I think, were quite happy to consolidate within the border. They were quite happy to develop a peace policy towards Northern Ireland And quite rationally, they wanted to exercise centralised control within the territory that the treaty had given them. That was what their fundamental ambition was. So for a lot of people at the time, the question of the treaty was quite either or. Do we take what the treaty has given us, consolidate it, develop it, develop a democracy and give up on the question of partition for the moment? That was the attitude, with the exception of Collins, of most of the people who ran the provisional government in 1922 and 1923. So I think in that sense, to criticise these kind of imperial colonial analogies can make sense that this new state did not encounter problems on the scale of Angola or Mozambique or Angola or whatever. The level of destruction, the level of violence, the difficulties of projecting power over territory. And also it's you know it's 90% a Catholic society, so it's extremely homogenous to begin with. This is another factor conducive to the projection of power. So the colonial analogies don't hold up in that respect. But I think one of the things we've got to consider and I'm sure Gemma is going to talk about this, what is the nature of violence in this particular conflict? You know, how many people actually killed? How are they killed? And why in particular does the situation become normal and peaceful so soon after the civil war ends at the end of April 1923? Why after a few years is there so much quietness at the local level? Why doesn't ignite now in terms of conclusion i just want to say something about the the theme of this particular conference and how the civil war can fit in to the question of commemoration where does it fit in in the series of events which take us from 1916 to 1923 certainly it brought something to an end Whether you talk about optimism, whether you talk about fraternity, whether you talk about idealism, whether you talk about revolution, it brought something to an end. For people who were inspired by the ideals of 1916 and wanted to carry that tradition forward, this was of course a really tragic experience because they found themselves sidelined They found themselves without any really long-term strategy for dealing with the situation. But at the same time, because of the example of the leaders of 1916, because of the people who had died between 1919 and 1922, and also because of the people who were being executed, (coughs) these republican ideals also made compromise very difficult to swallow for people. So there was a gap between those ideals and the prosaic reality that was developing. But there's another thing here too, which is that the Civil War has also demonstrated, if only on a small level, that when it came to it, and again getting back to this question, what happens to an emerging country when it has emerged, the Civil War also demonstrated that the Irish nationalists would use state power like any other nation When they were given the opportunity to do it. So, that was also something that was something that was considered a come down from the idealism of the previous six or seven years. So, I suppose when it comes to commemoration and how you actually commemorate a civil war, I was out of Ireland for the whole period of 2016. By and large, I didn't take part in any of the academic events. It seemed to me a kind of hypercharged commemoration of this event, almost as if we were living in a totalitarian state, but it was nonetheless basically looking at nineteen sixteen as a source of its freedom. It was so overwhelming. But that is nineteen sixteen as a source of ideals. And the question that's going to come with respect to the Civil War is how do you commemorate something that is not a source of ideals? but is actually a source of disillusionment. That's what it was in 1922 and 1923. And when we look back on it after 100 years, we still might find it to be something that is disillusioning. Okay, thanks very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. You can find hundreds of episodes on our website at historyhub.ie.